I don't know if you heard about the Human Genome Project that started in 19... It was conceived by the U.S. government in 1984 when the uh, DNA sequence technology was not well developed. Um, it finally uh, started in 1990, and it actually took 11 years. It finished in year 2001. They sequenced 6 billion pairs of DNA. And at that time, Bill Clinton... The president of the United States at the time declared, as he was uh, telling us uh, of... No, not, not yet there, just the first slide. <laughs> um, he declared, without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced. Uh, yeah, just one before. <laughs> uh, most um, wondrous map ever produced by humankind. Today we're learning the language in which God created life. We're gaining ever more, uh, uh, we're gaining ever more awe of the complexity, the beauty, and the wonder of God's most divine and sacred gift. This is Bill Clinton talking about the DNA and the wonders that God created. And Francis Collins, the next slide, who headed up the project, later. Uh, he, who's a devout Christian, later given the Medal of Freedom, National Medal of Science, and he was a, a, later appointed, and he's now the current director of National Institute of Health, which is the highest scientific body in the U.S., followed Clinton by saying, for me, the experience of sequencing the human genome and uncovering this most, this most remarkable of all texts was both a, sci a stunning scientific achievement and an act of, uh, an occasion of worship. Collins saw the complexities of the DNA as he was studying them and saw God's greatness and elegance in creating such a simple but complicated map. He studied the DNA and he says his studying became an act of worship. And this sort of beauty is not just found in the micro level, in the DNA level, but in the universe as well. Albert Einstein said, more I study science, more I believe in God. This wasn't because Einstein was a practicing Jew, far from it, but he was a scientist who studied the universe. And he was convinced that there was sublime rules that guided the universe, that there was this mystery that guided the universe. In fact, he's famous for saying that God does not play dice with the universe. Because when he studied it, he gained knowledge of existence of something he cannot penetrate, he hit words, of the manifestations of the profoundest reason and most radiant beauty. He saw reason and beauty in the universe. And I think this, this sort of sentiment is exactly what the psalmist proclaims in verses 1 and 2. Listen to the opening words. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim the works of his ends. Day after day, they pour forth his speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They don't make sounds, but they're pouring out information. They're revealing to us that there is one who's more glorious than us, someone who's more logical than us, somebody who created a universe with beautiful complexity and bewildering simplicity. No sound comes out. And yet, in verse 4, their voices go out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, he writes. Yeah, they say a picture is uh, worth a thousand words, um, and I think this is quite right at this point, so we're going to actually watch a video. Um, the song that accompanies it is called Creation Calls, and these words, uh, this is how it starts. I have felt the wind blow whispering your name. How could I say that there is no God when all the creation calls?
The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his mighty works. That last image, I don't know if you caught it, um, had this video footage of algae blooming in this part of the sea. And the footage is from the BBC documentary called BBC um, Planet Earth. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's a great uh, documentary. And I remember David Attenborough describing the scale of that algae bloom um, as the sun shines at that part of the sea, at that time of the season. And it, he says that it actually, the, the, the scale is so great that it actually produces more oxygen than all the rainforest combined. He then goes on to say something about the sun how everything living here on earth owes its existence to the sun, the oxygen, the sugar, carbohydrate, the, all the energy comes from the sun. No wonder Psalmist then sings the praise of the sun as the pinnacle of God's good creation in verses 5 and 6. In the heavens, God had, had pitched a, sun, a, a tent for the sun. Sun rises at the end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Nothing is deprived of its reach, and it gives life. So the psalmist reminds us to join in their praises, that we can go to the mountains and seas and enjoy God in them. He invites us to come into the creation and see their speech being poured out. But even as the creation sings God's praise, one of its limitations is that it can get misinterpreted. People can go into the, uh, the creation and see its grandeur and beauty and elegance, and they can actually mistake the creation for God. Hindi believe that the universe is God. Emerson and other transcendentalists believe the same, that the creation itself is God. And also, if we just had the creation, people can also praise the wrong God. Muslims, for example, praise Allah for the creation. Uh, Ancient Egyptians worshipped the sun as the God. Creation sings God's praise, but we might not hear it very well. And the psalmist seems to know the limitations of the creation's praise as well. So you see in verse 1 how the psalmist sings, the heavens declare the glory of God. That word for God is the general word, Elohim, God. The creation reveals that all God exists, that God is great and complex, even beautiful, but it does not show that God is a personal God, that God acts in history, that God is involved in human beings' lives, that he cares for us, that he is love. The creation doesn't show that. And that's why the psalmist moves from the praises of the creation to the praises of God revealed in the scripture from verses 7 and on. Listen to how the psalmist addresses God and how the name changes there. No longer is he simply Elohim, God. From verses 7, he's Yahweh. The law of the Lord is perfect. And when it says Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters, that's God's name. That's Yahweh, God. That's the covenant. God, the law of Yahweh is perfect. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy. The precepts of Yahweh, the commands of Yahweh. Yahweh is revealed in the scripture. And in order to understand this passage, we have to understand the relationship between God's law and who God is. That his statutes, precepts, laws, commands, wisdom, and decrees reveal who God is. God's character. You see, 
that laws say something about God. And that's why the scripture gives us a way to have a relationship with God, to know God in this way. It's because God is holy. He wants us to be holy. That's the relationship, character and the law. The laws about purity reveal something about God's character, that God is holy and pure. They're not arbitrary guidelines on how we ought to live. And we can't know this from the creation. The scripture and all the laws reveal who God is and the glory of God. That's why. That's why. Because laws are about God, that's why they're perfect and trustworthy, right, radiant, um, and pure and firm. Of course, Some find knowing God in this way and being given these laws that reflect God's character difficult. Because some just don't like having any laws, any restrictions in their life, even if it comes from God. Some think that freedom means having no laws whatsoever, no restrictions whatsoever. The movie I, Robot ends with the dialogue between Sonny the robot and the detective Spooner. Sonny says at the end of the movie, now that I've fulfilled my purpose, I don't know what to do. And Detective Spooner, um, Will, Will Smith's character, answers back and says, I guess you'll have to find your way just like the rest of us. Sonny, that's what it means to be free. Spooner thinks that freedom, having freedom, means having no law whatsoever. Freedom isn't inventing our way forward to pave our own path of right and wrong, how to live our lives our own way. That's what he thinks is freedom. And I think a lot of people feel this way. That's why they find the revelation that we find in the scripture constraining and restricting. It goes against our people's sense of freedom. But freedom... Isn't that simple, is it? Simple as not having any restrictions. Think about that. If we, you can ask a fish, we can ask a fish to walk on the ground. Say, why are you limited to the water? Go walk on the ground. And you drop the fish off the ground and it means death. He's not free. You can ask a, a, a bird. Actually, you're not limited to the sky. Walk around. He will find that to be death. There are rules that restrict and bind and inhibit, but there are rules that helps us to flourish. For the fish to flourish, he has to live in water. Rules that allow people to be more people, more human beings. These are the, uh, these are, the, these are the laws revealed in the scripture. You see, the psalmist has found that the law of God is perfect because when he obeys them, it refreshes his soul. The statutes of Lord, uh, the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right because it gives joy to his heart. Commands of the Lord open his eyes. Wisdom of fearing the Lord endures when everything passes away. These things endure. In, uh, he, he concludes in verse 10 that God's law, the God who is revealed, and, 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 and the laws that reflect, that reflect his character are sweeter than honey. Sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. He finds that the law are good. And when we bound himself to them, to God, to living in relationship with God, he felt himself more free. And is that what we find as we obey our lives, uh, as we give our lives to God and obey him? For example, take the rule of Sabbath. Sabbath. Sabbath keeping. The scripture reveals to us 
says that God is the one who created heaven and the earth, and God is the one who sustains us. And he says, take a rest. One day, take a rest. And you can take that as an imposition of an alien rule. But when we obey them, don't we find that this is a wise rule? That our bodies need rest, our minds need rest. It needs reflecting on God. It it needs trusting that God is the one who creates and sustains the world. And when we obey them, it refreshes our soul. We find that to be a wise law given to us. Take another command. The scripture reveals of a generous God. God who gives to the needy, who's on the side of the poor. He tells us that we too should be generous to store up treasures in heaven by giving our possessions away. And those who obey, don't we find that there is a tremendous joy in giving that, that, we, that we didn't know was available? Satisfaction that the world does not know. God shows himself to be a forgiving God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And although it seems to go against our natural instincts, when we forgive and when we let go, don't we find freedom there? Don't we find us to be, uh, ourselves to be uh, 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 free? <laughs> he tells us to be selfless. Don't we find that there is freedom in not thinking about ourselves so much? Take another. The Bible has told us that our primary relationship in the family should be between husband and wife. That's the primary relationship in, 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 um, in the family, not parents, children. That's the Bible's teaching. But, for, but so, uh, for so many of us, children have become focus of many people's marriage. But there's a recent book um, published by David Code, a family therapist and a writer for Wall Street Journal. He writes in this book, Raise Happy Kids, Put Your Marriage First. Today's number one myth about parenting is that more attention we give to our kids, better they'll turn out. But we parents have gone too far. Our over-focus on our children is doing them more harm than good. By killing ourselves to provide a perfect trauma-free childhood for our children, we're wasting our energy. The greatest gift you can give to your children is to have a fulfilling marriage yourself. I feel like this is what we've been teaching, what the scripture has been teaching all along. Focus on your marriage and your children will be happier. The scripture is wise because it reveals God, God and God's design for us and what it means for us to live in relationship with them. The law give us life. So let me ask you, what's your view of God? What's your view of the Bible? What's your view of the laws revealed in the scripture, of God's teachings? There are those who oppose God, who hate his laws. Is that you? And there are those who are religious. They obey the law, but they find no joy in obeying the law. It's an obligation, things that they have to do. And then there are those who love God and his commands, studying them, applying them, cherishing them. For they know this is the way for a fish to swim, for the bird to fly. This is the way that we are to thrive as God's good creation here on earth. The modern soul, the world is dying, shriveling. And the antidote to this is scripture. It's the relationship with God, studying it, applying it, living by it. We need to know who God is, and we need to know how to live in relationship with him in order for us to thrive. What's your view of the scripture? So we know the glories of God revealed in the creation, glories of God revealed in the scripture too. But 
as we come to know him better and better, we get a flip side of this as well. We get guilt. As we study the holiness of God in the Old Testament, we come, we realize how far we have fallen. We're given the Ten Commandments. And who, who, doesn't, who doesn't think the Ten Commandments are good? But how many of us actually keep them, live up to them? We can't. We see it in Jesus' teaching even more. The Sermon on the Mount is universally recognized as one of the greatest, greatest teachings. And people can see the beauty in Jesus' words. But who has not called others a fool? That's murder. Who has not looked at another person lustfully? That's adultery. Who has not shouted back instead of turning the other cheek? We all fall far short of God's standards and God's glory. And the psalmist was no, no exception. As he reflects on the goodness of God revealed in Torah, in the law, he becomes aware of his own sin. Look at what happens in verses 11 and 13. He sings there, By them your servant is warned. Who can discern their own error? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servants from willful sin. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. Having tasted God's goodness, holiness, he suddenly feels sinful. And I know that many of us feel the same way. And isn't it good news that God further reveals himself in Jesus? And isn't it good news that Jesus has come to call the sick, not the healthy, not, uh, not the righteous, but sinners? That is one aspect of God's glorious character that the Old Testament could only foresee faintly. The creation can't sing of God's holiness and love in this way. Even the law of the Old Testament couldn't have foreseen this uh, very well. The teachings on God's love, only Jesus could. Just think about that. It said the creation sings of God's glory. But do you remember what, in the Gospel of John, what John calls the hour of Jesus' glory? Hour of his glorification. It's not in the transfiguration when he becomes this glorious figure. It's not when he raises the dead, Lazarus. It's not when he feeds the 5,000. John calls the hour of Jesus' glory the hour of his death, when he would be lifted up from the earth and would draw all men to himself. You see, much more than in the creation, much more than from the perfect law of the Old Testament, the, the place where we see God's glory most fully and most clearly is when God seems most ugly. When we see God's holiness and love most clearly, when people spit on him and beat him and crucify him on that splintery cross, when we see God's, we see God's glory most clear, clearly there because we see God's holiness there. And how God takes sin so seriously, his intolerance for sin, but also we see God's love on that cross as he dies and takes place for us on behalf of us. There we see God's love. There we see God's holiness perfectly. Jesus reveals God's glory. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, first, I think it means that we must bear witness to the glories of God that has been revealed to us. 
You see, the creation declares God's glory, but it's limited. We know God through the scripture. We know God through Jesus. Singing God's praises for us as Christians must mean telling others, singing God's praise who has died on the cross for us. The God of the cross, we need to tell others about this God, how the glory of God is revealed on, in that place, on the cross. I think it also means having the right view of God, right view of the Bible, that the Bible is a vehicle given to us, the treasure given to us as a vehicle of knowing God. Having that God, having that relationship with God, it means reading it and studying it and applying it and see how it gives us life. It refreshes our soul and gives us joy. And finally, knowing this glorious God means that we seek to live lives that are transformed by him. And clearly, that's how the psalmist responds. After reflecting on the glories of God and then his sinfulness, he asked God to transform him. He knew that the creation poured forth speech day after day, night after night. So he asked his life, his words, to do the same in the final verses. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. He wants his words, he wants his thoughts to be pleasing to him, to declare God's praise at all times. Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And Paul later on says in um, Romans 12 that that is a spiritual act of worship. Worship is the proper end of seeing God's glory, isn't it? Worshiping him. And that means presenting our lives as living sacrifices. Living our lives in view of God's great glory. So let's pray together. Let's pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing to him. Let's not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's present our bodies, our mind, and all our lives as living sacrifices, as a spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for the creation that sings of God's glory, of your glory. And we thank you that this God that has been revealed to us um, in the creation has come and acted in history. We thank you for the record in the scripture, in the Old Testament. And we thank you that that God, that you sent your son, that we may know you fully. We may see your glory. We may behold it. And Lord, as we think about your glory, Help us to live in the light of that glory. Help us to bear witness to it. Help us to rejoice in the glories that are revealed in the scripture. And help us to live in response to it. We present our bodies, our thoughts, our words, our lives as living sacrifices to you. Amen.